a technician now. As we close out our holiday season, I'd like to preach a sermon today. I've entitled, God's Ways Are Different. <coughs> a little boy asked his mother one day as he came home from school, Mommy, where did I come from? Well, his mother sure wasn't ready for that talk. So she gave him a tall tale about a beautiful white feathered bird called a stork and how he arrived wrapped in a nice blue blanket right on the doorstep. So the boy thought about that for a minute, and he was walking down the hallway, and his grandmother was sitting in the, the room there. He said, Grandmother, where did I come from? And she said, Oh, honey, the stork brought me just like it brought your mom and brought you. So he thought about that. Mom said, Why don't you go out and play for a little while before dinner? So he went outside, and he was playing with his friends, and he heard these words, or she heard these words. You know, there hasn't been a normal birth in our family for three generations. <laughs> Have you ever considered why God chose the circumstances he did for Jesus' birth? How would you and I have planned the birth of the Savior of mankind? 750 years before Jesus' birth, the prophet Isaiah reminded us of God's thoughts. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, Isaiah said this, or God said to Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my way, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And this is something we must consider when we contemplate the birth of the Messiah. God's thoughts and ways are higher than ours. God looks at the big picture and sees things quite differently than we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, truly, we can think about, if we ever wonder about your thoughts and your ways, being higher than ours, all we have to do is look at the birth of your son. Because surely, Lord, we did not would have done it the way you did. But I pray that we can understand and learn more about you when we really deep down study what was going on that night in Bethlehem, the coming of your son. So help us, Lord, to have an open mind today to, to know you in a better way by your higher thoughts and your higher ways than ours to understand you a little better. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God did things differently in two ways at the birth of Jesus. The first way was the place he chose. The place he chose. I want to read in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 this morning. You're very familiar with this. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took place, uh, first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, 
to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now let me ask you this. What city would you and I have chosen for Jesus to be born? Washington, D.C., perhaps. No way. After all, it is the <laughs> political capital of the world. We have one no. Write that down. One against Washington, D.C. New York City. New York City and all those bright lights. Perhaps Los Angeles. Or maybe someplace I spent 23 years, Baltimore. I mean, after all, Johns Hopkins Hospital is in Baltimore, one of the greatest hospitals in the world. Or maybe Chicago, Illinois, another large city, the Midwest. Herod was nowhere around those places. Okay. That might sound silly. But at the very least, come on. How about Jerusalem? That was the center of the Israelite world. The Jewish world was Jerusalem. But Bethlehem? Why Bethlehem? In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the prophet spoke, fulfilling prophecy of 700 years before Christ. 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Micah wrote these words. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So why this little town of Bethlehem? It's because that's what God said would happen. That's what God chose. So let me ask you, what do we know about Bethlehem? This place that God chose. Bethlehem was a small town in Palestine, near where Jacob buried his wife Rachel, then known as Ephrath. It is also called Bethlehem Ephrathah, Bethlehem in Judah, Bethlehem of Judea, and the city of David. The city overlooks the main highway to Hebron and Egypt. So, though it was a small town, it was well known as a town of passage. Most people who wanted to go between Egypt and Hebron passed through Bethlehem. And after the conquest, Bethlehem fell to Judah. Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel after Jephthah. You can read that in the book of Judges, chapter 12. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi and father-in-law of Ruth, was a Bethlehemite, as was Boaz. Guess what? They are in the lineage of Jesus. So obviously Bethlehem was a pretty important place. David, King David, was born in Bethlehem. And here he was anointed as future king by Samuel. Here was the well from which David's three heroes brought him water in 2 Samuel 23. Thought to be the same three wells still existing in the north side of the village today. And it was the birthplace of the Messiah. 
and its male children were slain by order of Herod in Bethlehem. This Bethlehem was about five miles south of Jerusalem and elevated 2,460 feet above sea level. And though Bethlehem was small, it had a rich history for the Israelites. So, you're still saying, okay, I'm not convinced. That's fine. Let's convince you. What does Bethlehem mean? Bethlehem means house of bread. Does it seem appropriate that Jesus would be born in the house of bread? Why? Well, Jesus said himself in chapter 6 of John, verses 48 through 58, these words when he said, I am the bread of life. Your father ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give him is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he feeds on me, will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. And we know Jesus was really talking in a figurative form about eating the Lord's Supper one day. But the point of the matter is, Jesus said he was the bread of life or the bread of God that came. Where was he born? The house of bread to give spiritual life to the world. You see, Jesus was and is the bread of life. If you are spiritually hungry, Jesus is the one who can take away all your spiritual hunger pains. If you have been wondering, what is my purpose in life? Then look to Jesus for your answer. That's where we'll find it. That's a good reason why he was born in the house of bread, because he is the bread of life. I remember, I don't know if people still do it today, but I remember in time past growing up in my grandmother's house, in my mom's house, she had something that sat there on the counter, and it had this word on it, bread. They say, Mama, what is that? That's the bread box. If we have bread, that's where it goes. What was special about it? I don't know. <laughs> but I know if I wanted bread, that's where I went. That's where I find it. Well, what a better place for Jesus to be born if he is the bread of life than to be born in the house of bread. So that's one thing about Bethlehem. Now, here's another fact about Bethlehem. What about the sheep of Bethlehem? Here on the slopes were used for grazing of the special lambs that were to be sacrificed in the temple. These were the only lambs used for sacrifice up at the temple. Why? Because they were sheep without blemish. Sheep without blemish. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said this about him in John 1.29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God 
The Lamb of God was born where the sacrificial lambs grazed for temple sacrifices. And the Lamb of God was born in Bethlehem where a lot of other lambs were born and would be sacrificed for their blood. But only the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus, could totally atone for the sins of mankind. And also, these were the special shepherds who stayed here to watch the special sheep. And in Hebrews 13, 20, Jesus is called the great shepherd. And though you and I would surely not have chosen Bethlehem as the site for the king of kings to be born, God had a reason for his choice. And now that the town's been chosen, how about the place? Okay, it has to be a beautiful, comfortable place with the best medical attention. It will have the most modern room with the best technology, one of those big spacious rooms for Mary. It will also have a large crib for Jesus with all the frills and toys one can imagine. The nice baby blue color, right? And sure, that may be what we would do, right? People, I know a lot of people who, oh, we're having a baby. Well, what are you having? You know, there was a time that you didn't know what you were having. You guessed. That's why most people bought you, uh, if, they didn't, if they bought you presents before the baby was born, you know it was going to be yellow or green or purple. They wouldn't buy blue or pink because that could clash with whatever you, because you didn't know what you were having. Now people get pregnant and they seem to know the same day what they're going to have. It's almost like, what do you do? Go down to the store and pick one? And say, oh, I think it'll have that one right there. Oh, boy, that'd be lovely. So then you also always start cleaning up, you know, painting that room blue, getting all those pretty boy things like the crib and then all those wonderful things that go with it. And then dad's already buying baseball gloves and a baseball bat, you know, because my son's going to play baseball. Mom's thinking, well, if he wants to play a musical instrument, okay, we'll buy him a violin and a guitar as well. And then you have all these, these wonderful frills waiting for the day he's born. You know what I would always think? I would always think, you know, it'd be really funny if the doctor got it wrong. And they had twin, twin girls instead of a single boy. Wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> Somehow I don't think Mary had any of that in mind. Now obviously, in this case, Mary knew what she was having. She was told she was going to have a boy. They didn't even have to look through that big book called the Book of Names, you know, where you spend 10 weeks just trying to figure out what name, and then you come up with five, and then you, you know, dads and moms, they usually can't, they have to ask somebody else, well, what do you think? So they ask the mother-in-laws what they think. Oh, that's a bad choice. You just make the decision, because you know both mothers are going to have something different. Well, you really should name them after your great-grandfather on your father's side, so on and so forth. They already knew what his name was going to be. They didn't have to go through all that trouble. But here's something interesting. God chose something different. He chose a manger. Really? A manger? Now the word manger in Hebrew is hebas. In the Greek it's fatne. It means a stall. The Hebrew term can mean either manger or stall. It's rendered a crib in the King James Version, manger in the New American Standard, and the NIV. The Greek term as well means both stall and manger. 
from which cattle were fed. And probably it refers here to that portion of the inn that was used as a stable. Now in the east, the cattle were shut up in an open yard enclosed by a rough fence of stones or other material. Now poor travelers to the, or, or those excluded from the house through lack of room would share these humble quarters with the animals. Several of the early Christian fathers assert that the stable itself was actually a cave. The open-air stable, the manger, was essentially a feeding trough. And as I stated last week, this was not the place for the king of kings to be born. Think about it. It was sloppy, it was dirty, and it was an absolutely stinky place. This was a place of cattle and sheep and maybe even camels and donkeys. This was a holding pen for animals, not the birthplace for a baby. There was no comfort other than perhaps some hay and garments that Joseph may have had or uh, procured to make it comfortable for Mary as possible. No midwife, no medical attention, just Mary and Joseph. Imagine if Joseph would have said these words. I don't know nothing about birth and no babies. <laughs> now, we joke with that in this way, but really, what did Joseph know about birthing a baby? He's a carpenter. Chances are he didn't know. You know who the most important person was that was there? For the baby to be born was God himself. The father led Mary and Joseph to have that baby all by themselves. I think Joseph did just fine. Now is this really the type of place that you and I would have chosen? How many of you sitting here today who's had babies had a baby and laid it in a what feeding trough? out in the middle of the barnyard. Now you don't have to necessarily raise your hand on this, but I'd venture to guess both of you ladies who've had babies had them in a hospital. I've read not long ago a lady had a baby in a taxi cab. They were just a little late getting to the hospital or that baby was a little early. She had the baby in a taxi cab. So maybe she could understand a little better what Mary and Joseph went through. Really, it's not a place we think of where you'd want the Son of God to be born. But it's a place God chose, and why? Well, it says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. It could not be said that Jesus had every opportunity. Could not be said that Jesus was born to rich parents with the proverbial silver spoon in his mouth. No, he was born to humble, poor parents in a small town in some of the most deplorable conditions possible. Becoming the Messiah did not mean that it was granted to Jesus because of his wealth, status, or social status. No, Jesus could relate to the poor as well as to the rich. Jesus could relate to us all. He gave up the riches of heaven, become poor, and do without. 
And it says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. You see, God's choice is not our choice. But think about this. God's choice is the best choice. It's the best choice. So, the place that Jesus was chosen, the place that was chosen for Jesus' birth is rather unusual. Now, how about the people God chose? The people. Verses 8 through verse 20. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings and great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was... With the angel a multitude, the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. You think about it. Mary and Joseph. Why these two obscure people? What do we know about these two individuals? Well, first, Joseph. Let's start with Joseph. Joseph's name means may Yahweh add, or may God add, may he increase. Now, we don't know much about Joseph, but what we know gives us some insight why God chose this man to be the earthly father of his son. I think Joseph, while living at Nazareth, he became engaged to this young woman named Mary. But before he took her home as his wife, she proved to be with child. Now grieved at this, and yet not wishing to make a public example of Mary, Joseph desired to put her away secretly. Here's the case. If she's pregnant, which means, remember, they are betrothed. They are engaged. That was just like being married, just they haven't gone the full circle of, of uh finishing with the, whatever ceremony they had, and the consummation. But she would be his wife. If he chose to divorce her, he'd still have to write a certificate of divorce before the marriage. Now, the problem is this. She's pregnant. Well, as we know, there's only one way to get pregnant, right? Unless God gets involved, but that's what we're talking about here. So she's pregnant, guess what? That means she's had an adulterous relationship. And Joseph could stand her in front of the entire town 
and point out that she's an adulteress, that she has sinned, and possibly they could even stone her to death because she's committed this sin. But it said, no, Joseph desired to put her away secretly. It showed some of the character of Joseph, doesn't it? He's a righteous and loving man. He didn't want to humiliate Mary, though in her current condition, she was surely in a position to be humiliated. He was dissuaded from taking this step by the assurance of the angel that Mary had conceived under divine influence. Joseph obeyed the divine command and took Mary as his wife-to-be. As we learned last week in Sunday school, Mary was considered his wife because of engagement or betrothal was just as binding as marriage, but she was not technically his wife until the marriage was consummated. And according to Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, he took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. So see, Joseph was a righteous and loving man and followed what the word of God said, what he was told to do, and did that very thing. He was obedient to the decree of enrollment from Augustus Caesar and left Nazareth with his wife-to-be, very pregnant, and he went to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Again, he followed the law because he was told to go for a census. But wait a minute. Can I get an exemption? My wife was really pregnant. Don't care. Go to Bethlehem. You know what's kind of interesting here? You think about it. She's pregnant. She's very pregnant, getting really close, but they live in Nazareth. Where's Jesus to be born? Bethlehem. Now, how are we going to get Joseph with his very pregnant wife to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem? Oh, guess what? Caesar Augustus declared there's going to be a census. You have to go to the place of your birth, the city of your birth. Where was Joseph from? Bethlehem. God fixed the problem, didn't he? Like he always does. He was a law-abiding man. He went with Mary, Joseph, or Jesus. He went with Jesus and Mary to the temple to present the infant according to the law. He had Jesus circumcised on the eighth day. All these things Joseph did on the day he was supposed to do them because he was a righteous man. He, warned, he was warned by an angel to take them down to Egypt where he remained until he was directed by a heavenly messenger to return to the land of Israel and later returned his family to Nazareth where he carried on his trade as a carpenter. The last thing we know is when Jesus was 12 years old and Joseph took him and Mary to Jerusalem for to keep the Passover and when they returned to Nazareth continued to act as his father. It says in Luke chapter 2, 41 through 51. And scripture furnishes no additional information respecting Joseph. Done. He was a righteous, loving, law-abiding man who feared God, desired to be a good husband and good father to his family. Perhaps he's not the man we would have chosen to be earthly father Jesus. Maybe you and I would have chosen a doctor or a lawyer or a CEO of some big company. But God chose one who would be the best choice for the situation. To take care of Mary. What do we know about Mary? Well, 
Interestingly, Mary's name means obstinate or stubborn. No offense, Mary. <laughs> Moving right along. In the summer of the year known as 5 BC, Mary, a virgin betrothed to Joseph, was living at Nazareth, and at the time the angel Gabriel came to her with a message from God and announced that she was to be the mother of the long-expected Messiah, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the everlasting Son of the Father should be born of her. Now what was Mary's attitude? What do you think the attitude would be? This is what is recorded, Mary said. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Think about it. From many, many years prior, they knew the Messiah was going to come. Every woman in Israel wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. That's why having a male child was so important to them. You don't realize it? Go back and look at Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel. Hannah wept and wept and prayed and prayed to God that she would have a son. Why? She understood the importance she even says, God, give me a son, and I'll turn around and give him right back to you. And that's how the life of Samuel began. Every woman wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. And Mary says, every generation will call me blessed. And I think what, it, what she was saying there, every woman's going to call me happy. That it was me he chose. And soon after Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, they rolled taxi, and while there Jesus was born, he was laid in a manger. And then when they went up to the temple, when they had to go to the temple to offer the sacrifice of purification for the newborn child, the son, what'd they do? They had to offer a sacrifice, a lamb, but... If you couldn't afford a lamb, you could give the poor man's offering, which was either two turtle doves or a pair of pigeons. And that's what they offered, the poor man's sacrifice. On the 40th day, when Mary and Joseph and Jesus went up to the temple, and who did they meet at the temple? They met Simeon, and they met a prophetess named Anna, and they were heard to give thanksgiving and prophecy about this child. That never happened before. There was something special about this child. And Simeon and Anna knew. You know, Joseph didn't wait till the 41st day. He didn't try to sneak in on the 39th day. No, he went up to the temple on the 40th day. And I'd have to think, if there was a long line waiting to get in there to do this very thing, Joseph waited patiently because he knew it had to happen on that very day. 40th day, according to the law given to Moses. You see, also Mary was humble and a righteous and faithful and patient and loving woman. But she was only still a woman. 
She recognized that the Lord had chosen her for a special purpose, but this special purpose did not give her special privilege. She would still be poor. She would know the distress of losing her son in Jerusalem. She would feel the pain of having her son crucified on a cross. So why Mary? Why Mary? She's not yet married. She was inexperienced in child rearing. She was young. Most people believe Mary was between 14 and 17 years old because it was most common that as they would get into that range is when you would marry off your daughter. Mary was famous, or she wasn't famous. She wasn't experienced. She wasn't a superstar. We would probably not have chosen Mary or anyone like her. We would probably have chosen someone who was older, experienced, and had a better life. Perhaps we would choose someone like a movie star or who loves and adopts children or perhaps the wife of a politician or the wife of a businessman. But it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And Mary and Joseph were not chosen for appearance, but they were chosen because they had the right spiritual heart, the right spiritual qualities. And that's who God chose. And then finally, the last people that God chose were the shepherds. And Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. Do you recall who the first person was to visit you when your first child was born? Probably were your parents or grandparents or some other relative. They probably came with special gifts and it was quite the festive atmosphere there in that comfortable hospital room. Who would be your choice to visit Jesus at his birth? We would probably choose some dignitary, perhaps a president or ambassador, or maybe some wealthy business person, even some other per, uh, famous people like an athlete or an entertainer. But who did God choose as the first visitors of his son? Yeah, those good old smelly shepherds. They had a bad reputation, shepherds just like a garbage man. They weren't the kind of men you wanted to hang around with because of their smell and perhaps because of their edgy character and personality. So why did God choose them as the first visitors? Well, the life of a shepherd, as described in the Bible, involved much hardship and even danger. He was exposed to extreme, extremes of heat and cold. His food frequently consisted of precarious supplies afforded by nature, such as figs or the pods of the carob tree, and perhaps locusts and, and wild honey, he had to encounter attacks of wild beasts, occasionally of the larger species, such as lions and wolves and leopards and bears. Oh my. Nor was he free from the risk of robbers or predatory hordes. To meet these various foes, the shepherd's equipment consisted of the following articles. He had a robe made probably of sheepskin with the fleece on, which he turned inside out in cold weather. He had a pouch containing a small amount of food, a sling, and last, a rod and staff, which served the double purpose of a weapon against foes and the crook for the management of the flock. In my recent sermons from Psalm 23, we discussed shepherding in length. And some of those things were learned about shepherds, that they were watchful. 
They led their flock to feeding field in the morning, watched over the flock by day, searched for any sheep that went astray, ensured they were properly watered, counted their sheep at the end of the day, bedded them down for the night, and then watched at the gate by night. They also had a tenderness about them. They cared for the young and feeble, ensured they were kept from injury and pests, and led them to good pastures. These men are the first to see God's Son. And the shepherds saw the Lamb of God. And not only that, but we read that they were the first ones to share the good news everywhere. You know, that's the one thing that probably amazes me more than anything. These shepherds, they, they saw the Lamb of God, the Son of God, lying in a feeding trough, and they wanted to go tell everybody about what they had seen. It says they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. Widely known. I wonder how long it took everybody in Bethlehem to realize the Son of God had been born. Just from these few shepherds. We can surely learn something from these shepherds about telling others about Jesus. I find it rather interesting the reputation the shepherds had. Why? Because the three most reputable men known to Israel, Abraham, Moses, and David, were all shepherds. And perhaps that's why God chose the shepherds to be the first to visit and share the good news of Jesus' birth. And one final point. Being a chosen vessel of God doesn't mean you won't suffer disgrace and humiliation. Think about Mary and the shepherds. This event didn't bring them wealth fame, or power. But what it did bring them was faith, hope, and love for God. Which is the three would you prefer? I'll take the faith, hope, and love. And also, in case you missed it, the wise men, the magi, they weren't there. The scriptures clearly teach that they came and visited Jesus in a house. Many people believe that it might have been as many as 18 months or so before the wise men came to see Jesus. Why is that? It's like this. When they went to see Herod, Herod told them, go find this child, and when you found him, come back and tell me so I too can come worship him. But instead, Herod sent out a decree. What was the decree? Go tell, don't kill every male child from two years old and under in Bethlehem. You see, he was looking for a child that might have been as much as two years old. That's why most people believe that wise men didn't come for quite some time. Also, just to make it clear, the three items that's mentioned that the wise men brought, and we don't know how many wise men there were. We always think three because there were three items, but that doesn't necessarily mean that. We just know it was a plurality. But the gold, frankincense, and myrrh the great three things about those or great things about those items were one, they were items that were best given to a prophet, priest, and king, which Jesus is the only one in the scripture that tells us he was prophet, priest, and king. And also, as those gifts were given, Joseph, who was very poor, had the money and the financial means to travel to Egypt to take care of his family while he was there and travel back. You see, God had all the provisions taken care of. 
God still choosing unusual people and unusual places to give testimony about the bread of life that came out of Bethlehem, the Lamb, Lamb of God that was born there to take away the sins of the world. The birth of the Lord was announced to Mary, Joseph, and then the shepherds. And today we have set aside December 25th as the day of his birth. Needless to say, the real day is not mentioned in the word of God. There's no way that we know the real day when he was born. No doubt the real day was deliberately concealed by God. It is commercialized enough as it is. Christmas influences many in a positive way. As for the commercialization concerned, well, Scrooge had it right when he said Christmas. Bah, humbug. You see, actually, the spirit of Christmas is the spirit that every Christian should have every Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day, when the opportunity is given to be around the Lord's table, should fill every person who has come under the blood with the same spirit he has on Christmas Day. We should echo the words of the angel that night. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Sure, God didn't do it like we would have done it. But let me ask you this question. Aren't you glad he didn't? Aren't you glad God didn't do it like we would do it? I would hope so. We might laugh at God's ways sometimes. You ever wonder if God laughs at our ways? Somehow I think he probably does. Or I wonder if God would actually come down and tell us or, or audibly speak to us to do it a certain way. If we would laugh at him and say, I can't do it that way. Have you ever had somebody tell you to do something? Maybe you're building something, fixing something, on something. And they tell you to do it a certain way that's totally out of character of the way you were going to do it. <laughs> you just kind of look at them like, it's my job. Right? Okay. Keep your opinion to yourself. You want to do your job that way? That's, that's okay. But this is my job. And then you do it your way. And you're, hey, can you come over here and help me? Because these parts don't fit right. Usually that's a husband talking to his wife. Maybe you should have just listened to her in the first place. And that probably only happens to me. That's why over the years I've learned to read the directions. They put it in the box for a reason. <coughs> if you found set to Jesus, according to God's plan, today's a good day to do it. Because I'm here to tell you, if you don't, the alternative is something you don't want to have to experience. Hearing God say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. I'd rather hear him say, enter in, good and faithful servant, to your reward. And then we could really sing this song, Joy to the World, page 194. If you have a decision to make for Jesus, you come as we sing. Joy to the world. We'll do verses 1, 2, and 4.
for the blessing of your word, for the blessing of fellowship and prayer, and the blessing of being around your son's table today. I pray we'll take this joy that we share today, and we'll take it with us throughout the remainder of this year. We'll look forward to sharing it throughout the coming year, that people might know who Jesus is because of we sharing our joy that we have in Christ and the salvation that's been granted to us. And Lord, however more many days that you tarry before Jesus comes, I pray that we'll continue to be found as your children who are sharing the word of God. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you in all things. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
you stay up over there in the pink weeds, the side of We didn't hit stop. <laughs> I got it. But Tad, I am so glad you're better. 